Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbur Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined today by Giselle Donnelly, also a senior fellow at AEI. Yulia Joja, our friend from the Middle East Institute, is taking a well-deserved day off. Um, on our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that are uh, have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, um, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Fred Kagan, our colleague at AEI and director of the Critical Threats Project. Uh, if you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Uh, I want to first turn to you, Giselle, for your thoughts about the development on on, on on the Eastern Front in, in Ukraine. The war seems to be getting more brutal. Uh, Russians seem to be more indiscriminate in in their shelling and bombing. And, and I think we are sort of entering a, a new and more horrifying phase together with the news from Russia itself, where apparently FSB is planning mass executions on occupied territories and so on and so forth. Uh, to me, this has been a rather gloomy morning, so I hope I'll hear something to cheer me up a little well, bit. Well, uh, I don't think you'll get it from me, alas, uh, Dalibor. Um, I've been using this line for our last couple of podcasts, but uh, Kharkiv and Kiev seem very much to be getting the Grozny treatment measured by constant and uh, indiscriminate artillery barrages. Um, and we have hear, heard reports of uh, the use of uh, thermobaric weapons, fuel air explosives. I'll just briefly, before we turn to Fred, who's much more on top of this uh, than I, one thing that caught my eye this morning, and it was just a Twitter um, uh, hit, so I don't know whether it's true, uh, was that the Russians had attacked a uh, Romanian uh, cargo ship or hijacked it, um, uh, apparently with the intent to use it uh, as a supply vessel for operations, landing operations uh, on the Black Sea coast. Again, I don't know whether that's true, but I guess my takeaway would be this has always been a much larger war than we have comprehended, uh, and maybe that even President Biden wants to believe uh, at this point. So when you say, when we say there's, there's worse to come, I think there's much worse to come. Uh, so, but let, let us turn to Fred, um, uh, for, for his, uh, summary update of the state of play. And then we can go back to speculating about how miserable this is going to be. Fred, please, uh, uh educate us. Giselle, you're, you're ruining my uh, my limited optimism, um, which has come from watching the uh, repeated and stunning Russian failures to overpower the Ukrainian military conventionally. I'll talk about that a little bit, um, but then I, you know, I agree with you that I don't see how Putin can just accept that defeat, and I do think that the if the Ukrainians actually are successful in beating off the conventional ground attacks on, on Kyiv, especially, um, Putin is at least as likely to escalate 
in various ways as he is to try to back down. And I can't even really begin to wrap my head around what a back down would be uh, that he could tolerate having been um, defeated militarily by the Ukrainians if that happens. So I think your, your overarching uh, gloom and concern is uh, very merited. We're still in an extraordinarily dicey situation. And of course, uh, the Russians are doing absolutely horrific things to Ukrainian people uh, and to the innocent country of Ukraine. And we, I can't, you know, we must never lose sight of that. Uh, nor can I lose sight of the reality that the, you know, if you just do your basic net assessment of, you know, troops and tanks and tubes and stuff on one side and the other, you would still have to bet on Putin um, to to carry this. Um, it's just that what we're seeing on the ground uh, suggests that we that those metrics may not be enough. So. Um, the Russians, you know, as we talked about before, began this war with an inadequate and largely ineffective, very limited air and missile campaign. And then they ran a number of battalion tactical groups down the road toward Kiev and Kharkiv and elsewhere um, and met uh, collections of well-armed and well-organized angry Ukrainians um, who did fearful damage to those Russian units and destroyed several um, the Russians uh, repeated that exercise a few times um, and then concluded that they were going to have to do more, including that they were actually going to have to like get food and fuel to their troops, because one of the mistakes that the Russians had made was clearly not preparing adequate uh, logistical support for an operation that I really do think that they expected would see them driving straight into, into Kiev, having the Ukrainians surrender. Um, and not having to do a lot of fighting. So then we saw this big convoy come down from Belarus. That convoy uh, contains some combat power. Uh, I still We still don't have a good handle on it. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately and unfortunately, the weather has been terrible in Ukraine and cloud cover has been very extensive. So our satellite imagery partners haven't been able to get much of a good look at, at that uh, or other parts of Ukraine. But a lot of that convoy was logistics. I mean, a lot of that convoy was trucks. And um, a lot of it turned into some supply depots that the Ukrainian military is reporting on the northwestern outskirts of Kyiv. And then the Russian, the combat power in that convoy has generally, some of it, I mean, they, they tried another frontal assault yesterday on the northwestern suburbs of Kyiv and got stuffed again. Um, but some of that combat power has been enveloping Kyiv to the west and looking like they were going to try to encircle it uh, to the west. Um, they made some progress, but then the Ukrainians counterattacked and took back uh, an important town on the ring road the Russians had been driving along, which seems to have driven the Russians to uh, divert to further to the west, uh, maybe looking to get around that obstacle or do a deeper encirclement or envelopment. Um, I would be very surprised at this point if the Russians actually had the combat power in that convoy or around Kyiv to be able to support, even to complete an encirclement of that size, let alone actually to hold it against Ukrainian counterattacks. And the more that the Ukrainians are able to force the Russians westward, um, the, the more improbable the, the actual encirclement of Kyiv is. On the northeastern frontier, on the, on the east bank of the Dnipro, uh, the Russians have been, the Russians seem to be largely 
sort of funneled between the Dnipro on the west and the Desna River on the east. And they've been fighting hard to try to take the city of Chernihiv, uh, you know, which is near the border, which is a critical junction uh, of roads, including of bridges across the Desna. And they haven't been able to do that. So they've remained sort of funneled in this in this narrow, uh, you know, sort of cone. And they've made some progress. They've got a lot of combat power in that funnel. Uh, but the Ukrainians have been able to stop them short of the outskirts while the Russians still split their efforts between trying to take Chernihiv and trying to drive south. Um, so for the moment, the Ukrainians really have stalled the Russian advance, uh, certainly into Kiev, and are messing up Russian efforts to um, in- expand the envelopment um, around Kiev. The Russians are increasingly, as you say, bombing the city, attacking you know civilian populations and so forth. Um, but in terms of doing real damage to the Ukrainian uh, military defending the city, um, the Russians um, have been performing poorly and the, and the defenders are, are holding. Um, on Kharkiv, we've seen uh, something similar. Again, the Russians you know, tried frontal assaults. Uh, the Ukrainians stuffed them. Um, now the Russians have brought up more artillery, thermobaric weapons, other things. Um, they seem to be conducting, you know, uh, fire preparation of the battlefield. Um, it's hard to tell whether they think, whether the Russians think that they're going to do another frontal assault that'll be successful after they've reduced the defenders or if they're going to try to envelop. Again, the problem is, you know, we're seeing reports and, you know, we're relying heavily on Ukrainian reports here, although they've generally turned out to be pretty accurate um, over time. But we're seeing reports of a couple of battalion tactical groups sort of to do that envelopment, and that's not going to do it. So I think we're definitely in danger of seeing, you know, Kharkiv destroyed by fire. Um, But we are the prospect of an imminent Russian sort of seizure on the ground of the city still seems pretty uh, remote. Um, In the south, the Russians have... In the South, as elsewhere, Giselle, I'm going to put it this way. I mean, the Russians have conducted this campaign in a way that that would have gotten majors kicked out of any decent general staff academy anywhere. Um, So having, you know, having made a a very successful and rapid push north from Crimea and gotten a lot of combat power across the isthmus, the Russians then used it to attack along three diverging axes of advance. And... You know, so they drove west and they've been trying to take Kherson for days. Um, I don't know what the current status is. They seem not to have taken it completely and they certainly haven't consolidated, um, which is a problem because that seems to have held up their advance further west uh, toward Mikolaev and Odessa. They also drove north um, toward uh, Zaporizhia, uh, which was really worrying me a lot in, you know, a few days ago because... If you imagine, you know, a pincer movement from Kharkiv south, you know, to Dnipro and from Crimea north to Zaporizhia, then they could sort of trap a big part of the Ukrainian military in the east. But the guys around Zaporizhia, you know, which is not a small city and would be a major obstacle in itself, those guys seem largely to have stalled out as well. So that's just seems to be kind of there. And then they put a lot of combat power headed east. And you know, the bad news is that they've encircled Mariupol and they're destroying it. And I think that they very likely will destroy it. Um, 
which is, uh, I don't, I can't possibly understate the tragedy for the people of Mariupol and the, the people of Ukraine. From a military perspective, it's a pretty stupid thing for the Russians to be doing. Um, I've, I've been racking my brains trying to sort of make it make sense as to why that's worth that much combat power at this time. And the only thing that I could come up with really is that it would open a high-speed axis of advance for the Russian forces around Rostov to sort of then drive down the coast and maybe reinforce a drive on Zaporizhia or something else. Um, it's a weird thing to do, though, because those guys could just as well drive over the over the Kerch Bridge and come up through Crimea. So I don't know why you would bother to have this big fight for Mariupol. And, and where would they get the combat power to do all these second and third stage, you know, they would be all major offensives, right? They would, they will all be major offensives. Absolutely. So, so I have a related question, which is, uh, you know, what, what's your sense of, uh, of the sort of share of, 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 of Russian forces that have already been committed to, to fighting? What, you know, what are they keeping in reserve, so to speak, and if they were to bring in additional forces from elsewhere in Russia, like what would be the timeframes on, on on such things? This is clearly not going according to plan. Well, Putin uh, so just told. Well, hang scramble. on a second, Dalibor. I mean, Putin told Macron that it's exactly on plan. <laughs> I mean, you need to stay. To, you need to stay up to date on this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. And of Bill, course, yeah. and Bill Raggio agrees. <laughs> it 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 isn't. Um, no, look, you're right. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, now we're seeing people saying 75, 80% of the forces that they'd concentrated have been committed. I mean, just sort of counting B, BTGs and looking at, at it, it that, that sounds plausible to me. Um, I don't think that they have a large reserve force out of what they had already mobilized, with the exception of, I don't know how much of the 150th Motorized Rifle Division has been committed uh, to the fight around Mariupol. Um, or elsewhere, but uh, that's a long way in the, to the east, and um, they seem to be committing that to fights in the east right now. Although that we're seeing some reports that they're trying to, again to maneuver through northern Luhansk province, um, possibly to help with the with this taking of Kharkiv. But your fundamental point is right, Donabor. The Russians are taking such heavy casualties and losing so much combat power in these initial fights that when you say now they're going to have to go fight and take, a, you know, a Dnipro, which is a city of, you know, of, uh, over 500,000 anyway, Zaporizhia, which is not much smaller than that, um, they still have to do something about Kiev. Um, and then there's the whole west of the country to think about, um, you know, either to block it in some way or to take it. If, if heaven help the Russians, they think they're going to go now, you know, fight and take Lviv and Ivano-Frankivsk. Um, and they haven't, of course, even, you know, brought up any kind of serious effort against Odessa, uh, which, you know, they, there are forces that are presumably in reserve in the sense that the naval infantry, I don't think in the South has been fully committed. I think the weather has been too bad. I'm hearing for them to really try to do a lot of naval landings. I, if I were the Russian officers, I would be reluctant to try to do naval landings around Odessa before I'd really secured a ground line of communication to get there. And so if they do that, we could see fights against. So there are some sort of in certain areas, there are limited reserves. But I don't think that there's some big Russian reserve force out of what was mobilized yeah. that, that can come down here. 
over the longer term, what I'll tell you is, I mean, I am, I am concerned, you know, Putin did only a partial reserve call up for uh, this attack. And as I've been sort of trying to think through, why aren't we seeing, you know, the rest of the first guards tank army showing up uh, now? Because I, I don't think we are seeing that. Uh, I suspect that he will have to do another reserve call up uh, to fill out additional units uh, if he wants to add additional combat power into this fight. Um, he hasn't ordered that yet. I think we I'm watching to see if he you know, issues an order like that. Um, we've got a, a Federation Council meeting tomorrow, I think. And I think we saw there was a Russian National Security Council meeting that was announced for, for today or tomorrow. I don't remember exactly which. Um, and I would not be surprised if we saw an additional, you know, call up of some variety ordered coming out of those meetings. Um, and uh, candidly, right now, our, our our people are still looking into what the you know what the Russian mobilization uh, you know stages and timelines are. I don't know the details of that, but that's not something that happens instantly. Uh, right. And then you can think about the effect on the Russian population of, you know, of a further reserve call up for this war, although it's the Russian information space is so weird that it's very hard to, you know, be confident about how that would go. Yeah, but but still uh, a, a call up that would produce the numbers that would be necessary to make a military difference is going to be hard to sort of sweep under the carpet. Uh, no, he's not even, going to sweep it under the carpet. Yeah. yeah. No, it'll be public. Um, I think the bigger problem is, again, but, but I, I like, don't know. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, but I'm just who, gonna... you know, who are you calling up at this point? And, you know, yeah, are, are we going to get nice. to the point where you're going to call up the, you know, the 30 to 45 year old cohort and, and put, you know, put those guys in tanks and have them, um, you know, go die in get in there and go take Kiev? I mean, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a kind of a weird world if we get there. But I mean, just before we leave this in entirely to, to really even reduce the resistance in these cities um, is going to require, you know, sort of a close combat, uh, you know, they're in, whether it's, you know, direct or indirect, you know, they got to close, with the enemy. And at that point, you know, the only thing worse than attacking, uh, uh, you know, an urban environment is a destroyed urban environment. Uh, I mean, they're, they're in yeah. some ways they're making it easier to at least defend yes. tactically. Yep. Um, They've know, forgotten so. all the lessons of Stalingrad. <laughs> well, you can't make this stuff up, right? No. <laughs> um, Fred, what what do you know about the situation on the Ukrainian side of the wire, uh, particularly about in terms of uh, resupply and things like that? I don't I don't know much about it because by by it by design and intention we don't collect on it. Um, yeah. The Ukrainians have had pretty good opsec, um, and we have done you know, we I, we want to preserve that. I can, so we can, I observe the effects that Ukrainian forces can generate on the Russians and their resilience of Ukrainian forces in the face of repeated Russian attacks. And I make conclusions from that. 
Yeah. There were reports yesterday and a little bit the day before that they were running out of munitions. Uh, that does not see, you can't see a large scale effect of that, certainly, right? No. Um, no. And I have no idea, you know, what is coming into the country, but things are coming into the country. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I can imagine a lot of distribution complexities and, you know, and, and so on. And we'll see. But no, we have not observed that. And the Russian, you know, sort of operational pauses um, as they've been trying to get their stuff together. And then the, these sort of very limited, a couple of BTGs at a time kind of attacks um, have clearly been allowing the Ukrainians to, to you know, concentrate their fire. Yeah. yeah. If there's a timeout, it applies to both sides, right? That's right. Yeah, no, that's yeah. right. And the Ukrainians seem to have been very sharp about, you know, being very intentional and thoughtful about where they get into these fights. Um, and in general terms, you know, we haven't seen them doing anything. I mean, we, I, I'm really impressed with the Ukrainians. I'm, in, I'm impressed, you know, with the, with the courage of the Ukrainian people who just, you know, decided at the outset they were going to fight like lions and they are. But I'm also uh, really impressed with the intelligence and thoughtfulness of the Ukrainian uh, military response to this, uh, which has really, I think, made the Russians pay for almost every mistake that they've made. Speaking of um, the stuff that's coming into the country, there were reports of, 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 of a new batch of Turkish TB2 drones coming in. Uh, the European Union made a promise on behalf of its member states to supply uh, Russian or Soviet-made fighter jets to, to, to the Ukrainians. There was some backtracking from, from individual member states. So that brings me to, I suppose, my question about sort of you know air power and air dominance. It looks like Russians haven't been able to establish that yet, in spite of having a very strong numbers advantage, I imagine. How do you account for that? Are they not even trying? Why, I don't. Why, why, what was happening I, on, on, on that front? My, my head is continuing to explode about this, Dalibor. I don't understand why there are Ukrainian aircraft in the air. I just don't. Um, I, where are the vaunted S-400s and S-500s? Um, those are, you know, apart from the fact that a lot of this is happening pretty close to the Russian border, uh, those are mobile systems. Um, I don't understand why there are still Ukrainian, uh, you know, I mean, we're seeing, I, I, and again, a lot of what we're getting is Ukrainian reporting. So I can't, you know, in, especially the air stuff, I can't necessarily independently verify, but I mean, you know, we're seeing reporting that like Ukrainian MiG-29s are shooting down Russian SU-35s. That's, <laughs> that's sort of baffling anyway. Right. That shouldn't be happening, even anything else. But why are there why are Ukrainian MiG-29s even able to fly? And I can't I can't answer those. I can't answer those questions. Um, you know, some of it has to do with some of it obviously must have to do with Russian uh, restrictions on their own forces using these systems, because, look, Ukrainian S-300s are shooting down Russian MiGs. I mean, it's not like we, it's not like the system doesn't work. I would, mm -hmm. my, my, uh, the only suspicion I can offer you is that the Russians are reluctant to be, you know, letting those systems shoot when there's a lot of Russian aircraft in the air. Um, and, you know, we did have that incident in Syria some time ago when the Syrians with an S-300 shot down a Russian aircraft. Now you would think that Russian gunners are going to be better than that, but 
you know, some, uh, sometimes the Air Force pilots are, are pretty reluctant to have, you know, systems like that engaging <laughs> when they're flying around. But you're supposed to be able to do that. So, you know, yeah. you know, there's a I mean, I, I suspected and kind of thought this in, in the for the last couple of years and the Syria thing is a, a great example. But all the for all the fluffing of Russian conventional military modernization, you know, the, their, I forget what they call their supposedly fifth generation airplane, but... With the SU-57? Yeah. Okay. So I don't, I don't think that has been, you know, introduced into a unit and that they've built more than, you know, maybe a dozen. I think of the same is true of the Armada tank. You know, this is a T-72 led. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Uh, but you I know, mean, let's, let's talk about why that is for a minute. Um, you're absolutely right. And whatever the modernization is, the thing is that the, you know, the lead forces, this has been one of the things that's baffled us from the beginning, right? Giselle, the lead forces here that are driving on Kyiv are Eastern military district units, right? Which are the bastard stepchildren of the Russian right. military. Those are the right. last guys who get modernized equipment. It's like, attacking, it's like attacking Mexico with the Texas National Guard. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I would probably bet the on Texas National Guard in many respects. <laughs> Yeah. But it's just, I mean, it's a crazy, it was a crazy lineup. So, you know, where are the elite, you know, first guards tank army guys who in principle have been getting that stuff? But the one thing I do want to note, Giselle, because this is also important. Look, I'm not, I'm pretty sure that the guys who were leading that uh, long convoys move and that who led that envelopment were probably elements of the 104th Regiment of the 76th Airborne Division. That's an elite formation. And we've seen, you know, multiple airdrops by, um, you know, Russian airborne units and Spetsnaz um, at, you know, trying to take the Antonov airfield, trying to take Buddy's Peel, get just wrecked. I mean, get just completely wrecked. And those are elite units. So on the one hand, we're seeing a lot of T-72s, but, you know. Okay, so right, so put. I mean, again, there's something I've always thought that the the slice of the Russian military that really was well equipped, well trained, well led, you know, fully competent units, always struck me as being a very small slice of the overall force. And again, if you sort of look at the history of Russian campaigns over the last 10 years, it, you know, they've done relatively small things with relatively small forces. So, I, you know, you just got to wonder whether they were so overconfident um, and, and at the same time really reluctant to commit, you know, the... the the crown jewels, the very small <laughs> crown jewels uh, in the Russian military, you know, for God knows what reason. But yeah, again, you just really wonder what what the art of the possible is for the Russians. Like it's a related question is, you know, how are they going to recalibrate now? And and if you know, if you were in the Kremlin, Fred, um, 
you know, what, how would you sort of think about this problem going forward so that we have a clear idea of what to expect? Well, geez, I mean, look, to Giselle's point, I think we definitely have a problem of scale, you know, and people used to joke about how when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, they forgot to look at the scale on the map. And right. I do think that there's a similar phenomenon here, that the Russians were used to an air campaign that looked about like the Syria size and they were used to the sort of, uh, you know, mechanized operations like they did in 2014 and 2015, where battalion tactical groups were fine. And they didn't realize that it's it's just, it's, it's a whole other kind of undertaking if you're going to try to do, you know, four massive mechanized maneuver operations against big cities. You can't just blow up what you did, you know, at the Baltzava and take Kiev with it. It just, that the, it doesn't work that way. And they haven't been exercising at that scale. Um, and, and like that, there are other, I have other hypotheses and theories about how you get into this kind of mess, but we can hold those for a different time. Look, to answer your question, Dalibor, my problem is I, you know, there's a rational answer to this, which is, you know, your military leadership goes in and, and gives the, the commander in chief, a you know, a solid fact-based situation-based assessment that would probably go something like, sir, I think we maybe need to try to negotiate something here. Right. Um, but then if we had been having that conversation, then we wouldn't be seeing, we wouldn't have seen this stupid invasion done this way to begin with. Right. So my concern is we're still dealing with a Putin who believes and has believed his entire life that weakness is lethal that we've got, and this brings us back to the more depressing points that you all started with, that, you know, we've got a wounded bear here and a wounded bear is an extremely dangerous animal and an unpredictable one. So I think Putin is going to certainly going to lean into more efforts to try to win this war conventionally. Um, and I think it's going to take a lot to persuade him that that can't happen before he, uh, decides to do something else. Because if you just think about what are the consequences for Russia of actually losing the conventional phase of this war? I mean, I think Petraeus was right in saying the Russia, Putin's already lost this war because if we go to insurgency, even he's lost. But if he can't even win the conventional phase of this, that's, that's weakness possibly approaching lethal in some respects. So I, I think we're, we're, we're pretty certainly down for, you know, another week or more of, you know, Russian doubling down on trying to make this happen. Fred, I think you need to channel your inner McClellan. He has, <laughs> Putin, Putin has successfully defended uh, the, the, the two republics of the Donbass and repelled the invaders and uh, uh, conducted the campaign admirably. Yeah, I don't. I I think he needs to channel his inner McClellan, but I, I don't have a lot of confidence in that. No. Well, let's hope that's the off ramp. Yeah, yeah. Here, here. Fred, you've you've restored my hope that the Ukrainians can hang on. I mean, for all the bleak news and the uh, immense size of the Russian hammer that hasn't been dropped. Um. This, at least by the standards of this podcast, uh, has been a very cheery and uh, <laughs> optimistic, uh, optimistic briefing. And so, uh, thank you very much for for coming on. And um, we've been down so long; it looks like up for, to uh, from here. Indeed, thank Thanks you for, for having that. me. 
we look forward to doing it again. Uh, Dalibor, why don't you uh, drop the curtain? Sure. From Dalibor Rohaj and Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Fred Kagan from AI. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.